And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. This is a rock and roll museum. You guys don't belong in here. <laughs> yeah. They ranted. They fainted. They eyes were glassy. Some pulled their hair out. Some tore their dresses. They threw notes of a very... Uh, undesirable nature on the stage. I'll tell you all about it. Welcome to Long Play, a podcast where nerds rock out with their Spock out. Welcome to Two True Freaks Presents Long Play. This is the podcast where a couple of nerds get together and talk about some of their favorite uh, albums of all time. I am your co-host this evening, Luke Giaconetti, and I'd like to introduce my co-host for tonight. You might know him from the uh, podcast, The Quarterbin Podcast, as well as the Short Box Showcase over on the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, but we all know him as Professor Allen. How you doing, Allen? Doing great, Luke. Glad to glad to be here for this one. Oh yeah, I'm I'm very excited. This is one that we've been talking about for a couple of months. Yeah, bad out of hell too. I'm <laughs> sorry Bailey couldn't make it, but wait a minute. Whoa, whoa let me reread this email. Wait a minute. Oh, <laughs> uh, do we need to take a break so you can do some show prep? <laughs> I can wing it. They can wing it. Okay, I'm oh, good. Good. That that's about the level of prep that we normally bring here on Two True Freaks. So. Um, so, yes, no, we are, in fact, not doing Bad Out of Hell 2. May that day soon come with you and, and Michael, because I, just as an aside, I enjoyed the living heck out of that episode you guys did. That was fantastic. Um, Blast. Yeah, so we're, we're, we are sticking a, kind of in the same uh, area of, of rock. We, we are there are talk- some similarities. Yeah, there's, there's a, lot of, uh, a lot of theatrics there's some, and a lot of prog, that kind of stuff. And uh, so tonight we're going to be taking a look at a band that I would venture a guess that a lot of uh, listeners who are younger than me probably only know as a joke uh, from the uh, Austin Powers films. And that band is, of course, the Alan Parsons Project. And uh, specifically, we're going to be looking at their 1980 album, The Turn of a Friendly Card. So, uh, Professor, what uh, what's your background with the Alan Parsons Project? Well, other than finding a gentleman who spelled his first name correctly, that was always a big deal to me. And mostly uh, the way I spell my name is the British way, A-L-A-N. But I will tell you, I still get emails 
from people I've worked with for 15 years. A-L-L-E-N. <laughs> Just wanted to run this idea by her. Can you cover my class? Or we're meeting on this committee. Can you do it next Tuesday? And I will write back, A-L-A-N, and they will reply, A-L-L-E-N. <laughs> hmm. Is my bitterness coming out already? Is it too early? To... It's never too early for that. <laughs> now, I did not own this cassette, it would have been, as a kid. But my sister did. My older sister. And I probably listened to it way more than she did. But, see, here's the problem. It's 1980-ish. Comics were running about 50 cents each in 1980. And a new cassette was, what, seven bucks, eight bucks? That sounds about right. Sorry, I'd, I'd rather have 12 or 15 comic books than a new cassette. <laughs> especially when my sister liked the same band. So it's that legendary Professor Allen cheapness mm -hmm. on display just a mere 35 years ago. <laughs> uh, you know, she bought it, I'm sure, because of the hit songs. Mm -hmm. uh, but I really got into the whole concept album of it. Yeah. And I'm, I'm probably a bigger fan of it uh, by far than than she was and wore it out. I probably made a dub of it myself. Mm -hmm. At some point, she probably would have wanted to take it to college. So we had one of those, you know, double decker cassette yep. mm -hmm. players. So I'm sure I, I'm sure I had my own copy, but proudly, I'm pretty sure I didn't buy my own. Copy. <laughs> um, my, my story is actually similar in some points. Uh, my, uh, my introduction to the Alan Parsons project was, and I've mentioned this on other shows, uh, not necessarily long play, but other shows where we've talked about music. My father was really big on listening to music in the car. And so anytime we took a car trip, whether it was, you know, a, a you know, a, a 20 minute ride over to my grandmother's house or the 20 hour drive from New York to Orlando for vacation, <laughs> Yikes. dad would always have, uh, first the, you know, the, the, um, the zippered case of all the cassette tapes and then later the CD wallets. Uh, so that dad would listen, we would always listen to music and Alan Parsons project was one that dad would listen to. Uh, you know, I, I became very familiar with, um, you know, eye in the sky and some of their other eighties albums because dad would play those on the long trips. And that's how, you know, I was exposed to them was because dad listened to them. Now, specifically for the turn of a friendly card, I also have it on tape. In fact, I'm holding my tape up. I'll hold it up to the <laughs> mic here. Okay. And I got a copy of this because for some reason, my father had two copies of it. I don't know if, I don't know how he ended up with two copies of it. I, I never have thought to ask him, but <laughs> he kept his copy and I kept mine. So I've got my uh, Arista records and tapes, cassette tape here. It's, <laughs> You can tell it's an Arista because on the front it's got the album art and then about two-thirds of the way down it turns into a plain field with the UPC symbol on it. <laughs> uh, and also, interesting enough for the time, the, uh, uh, the all the, the cassette, the back of the cassette, the part that hinges out on the case, instead of being black plastic, is bright red. And all of the J-sleeve is all red as well, going with the theme and the uh, the cover Ooh, artwork here. Nice, nice. And it, so it really stands out. It's very nice. I mean, a lot of times on long play, we talk about, uh, guys talk about their history with as far as records. But being born in 1980, I did have a very small turntable as a, as a, as a young boy, but the only records I had were like um, uh, book and record sets. 
you know, right, so right. listen to uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Harry Poppins, or The Black Hole. My, you know, uh, history with music is uh, compact cassette, and that I all I still have a great affection for the cassette format, for the J sleeves, for the cases, all of it. And uh, so I, 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 to this day, this is the only format I own this in. I have it digitally, but I still own my cassette. And um, my current, uh, my, my current daily driver does not have a tape deck. But the one I drove before it did, and so you better believe this oh, nice. this one was in the car for driving back and forth. I probably haven't had a access to a cassette on a regular basis to a cassette player in well over a decade. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have some old boom boxes. I'm afraid to to put the tape in. So <laughs> what am I afraid of? Right. Well, I'm afraid that I'll never be able to listen to it again because it'll break. You haven't listened to it to a decade, Middleton. <laughs> I mean, that's what exactly am I losing? I haven't quite figured that one out. Right. Cannot yeah. bring myself to do it. I, ironically, my um, my cabinet stereo, at this point, neither of the tape decks work, and it's down to just being and, – and even and last time I tried it, the CD player was a little wonky. It's mostly just a radio <laughs> now, whereas my boombox still works. So wow. – you and John Cusack. Yeah, we got and... we. I got that going on. If I ever get eight eight D batteries together, I'll be in business. <laughs> and and for me, uh, you know, I've never been able to find a reliable way of digitizing a cassette. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to play it and record it, which could theoretically work. But again, I haven't been able to figure out between the player and the cassette itself to get it. I, I tried it about a decade ago. I had a a setup put together, but the, the quality just wasn't very good, especially yeah. compared to ripping a CD or even you know, buying an MP3. Right. And you know what's odd is that we're in an era now where VHS has this kind of retro appeal to the point that now uh, Shout Factory, if you go on their streaming service, they will show some of the films that, they own, that they've uh, released, a lot of their 80s horror films that they've released on Blu-ray. You can now stream them ripped from a VHS source <laughs> if you want that wow. authentic experience. Right. But I, I guess people just don't have the same affection for compact cassette that we yeah. do for VHS, yeah. you know. Now, I was at uh, Barnes & Noble recently doing a little early Christmas shopping. And in their music section, they had a vinyl section. Mm. You know, so, you know, that has been making a comeback for a while. Yeah. I'm uh, not sure cassettes ever will. Though. No. Well, you see, the thing with vinyl and cassette was that they could coexist because they didn't compete with each other. You know? Mm, right. The, the cassette was designed to be sturdy and be portable, and so you could play it in your car very easily, and obviously you couldn't have a turntable in your car. You could carry it with you in a Walkman. Obviously, you couldn't carry a record with you. So that's why they existed in their own space, and they were complementary. The CD... Initially, okay, you couldn't play it in the car, but very quickly you could. And yes. very quickly you could carry your Discman with you. And so that is how the CD killed, essentially, both of those formats for quite a long time. Until, of course, you know, digital, you know, did to CDs what CDs had previously done to tape. So <laughs> That is a creative destruction, as we say <laughs> in the business class. Yes. Uh, well, getting into more creativity, a little bit of background on uh, on the band, the... Alan Parsons' project is has uh, has had a lot of members over the years. The two core members are the group's founders, 
and that is audio engineer Alan Parsons and keyboardist Eric Wolfson. And Parson and Wolfson, they met at Abbey Road Studios in 1974. Parsons uh, had been working there as an assistant engineer, actually, on several of the Beatles albums that they recorded. It, uh, and that's our connection to Bob Fisher yep. making this an official long play episode. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> it was funny because Bob and uh, Tom Panarese just did an episode on Billy Joel's The Stranger, which was fantastic. A great album and a great episode. Uh, folks, if you have not downloaded and listened to that one, please go back and listen to that one after this. Uh, but what was funny is they made a reference to... Um, Tom made a reference to the, the song Only the Good Die Young, and he said, oh, this is not the Iron Maiden song, Sorry Luke. <laughs> and Bob just started laughing, and he couldn't recover for like 10 minutes. So I'd like to think that Alan Parsons' project is more uh, more in line with what he would have spun on uh, during his time working that's in radio right. Right. Than, than Iron Maiden. But, um, but that was where uh, uh, Parsons, besides working on the Beatles, he had also he uh, did some work on Dark Side of the Moon, and a lot of other records uh, from that era. And Wolfson was actually a session pianist. And him and uh, Parsons, he produced several albums uh, as Parsons' manager. And then they decided, uh, they got together in 1976, and they formed the Alan Parsons Project to release the album Tales of Mystery and Imagination, which was a semi-concept album inspired by the works of Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, eventually they signed to Arista, and then... Uh, they released a few more albums leading up to this, which, as I said, was recorded in uh, late uh, 1979 into 1980 for a November 1980 uh, release. And uh, this was a, a a pretty big hit. There was some good, uh, some very popular singles off of this album, in addition uh, to the you know the the deeper album cuts that form kind of the concept. But uh, this one's always kind of stuck with me as one that it's very very easy to listen to because it moves very much very quickly. And, um, you know, one thing my dad always says to me is a sign of a good movie is when you don't realize it's been Mm. an hour and a half. Right. Uh, A sign to me, it's the same with an album. A sign of a good album is you don't realize, oh, my gosh, it's almost over. (laughs) You know? What I liked about, you know, conceptually about the way this band was formed is that the idea is that you don't need your singer and your guitar player really to be the front people, to be the focal point. Of, uh, of an album. And the comparison that I saw a lot of people make was to movies. That you don't need, that, that you, you don't need the actors to be the focal, the focal part of a film. Mm-hmm. And that if, if, if a movie is the executed vision of the director in, in, in all parts, then an album should be the executed vision of the producers. Mm-hmm. It's sort of the auteur theory of filmmaking applied to music and we'll just talk in this album there are i believe four lead singers mm-hmm. you know, on the nine nine to ten tracks and you know that is unheard of in in i mean that that's not the that's not the way a band operates mm-hmm. you know if, again if we listed all the musicians it's uh, a couple dozen folks who were involved in this but it's Parsons and Wolfson's vision. Yeah. You know, that's why it's, you know, that's why, you know, they're the core of the band. Mm-hmm. It's the bringing in other people, uh, just like, again, a, a, a movie director will bring in actors and bring in, 
the directors of photography and bring in the cinematographers, you know, and, and, and really then just oversee the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's a great analogy because uh, not only on this album, but on their other albums as well, there was always a, a rotating cast of collaborators and that they might come in to do one song, to play one instrument on one song because that's what the song needed for the overall uh, feel and the overall place on the album. Uh, you know, you, if you go on YouTube, you can find a lot of Alan Parsons Project albums ripped in whole so that you get, you know, it's a, it's, it's the whole album that somebody just ripped off a of vinyl, right. you know, with just a little break when they flip it over. Um, and, and, and that's how they're really meant to be listened to. I, when we started the, the, the initial concept of the show that became long play, I really wanted to do this one because Turn of a Friendly Card works so well as an album. It, yes. And, and it's true for all the Alan Parsons Project's um, uh, records is that they work well as taken as a whole. And they can be split up. There were, like I said, singles that were popular off this album, but they still work as part of the, the bigger uh, picture, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. This was the and, – and the, this was their breakthrough album. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eye in the Sky was probably technically a slightly bigger seller. A, a little bit bigger hit, uh, but th- this was the breakthrough. And it, it is that weird combination of a couple of pretty big radio hits for the pop audience and then some more uh, adventurous material, mm-hmm. you know, for the prog rock crowd. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's mostly the back end of the album, uh, you know, as, as we'll talk about, but it's an interesting combination. Mm-hmm. You know, cause sometimes the experimental, the progressive, can get, you know, uh, so far away from commercialism, so far away from pop, you know, that it, that it's, it just doesn't sell. It, it, it doesn't work. You know, this album represents sort of a, a nice intersection of those mm-hmm. things. Yes. Yes. Well, let's, let's get into the album here, but first I do want to talk about the album art because it is a very, Subtle in a way, but very striking and memorable album cover. And it's a very simple. It's just, uh, it says the Alan Parsons Project in a very plain white font on a black field. And underneath it is a stained glass window that you might see, uh, in a church, except instead of depicting a sign of the cross or one of the saints, it is the King of Diamonds. And, uh, this, I always liked this because I, uh, I grew up Catholic and I went to a Catholic school. So we went to, uh, mass like, uh, you know, a couple of times a month, plus going to mass on Sunday. And the church that I went to had all the stained glass windows showing the, uh, all the, the, the saints around. I think it had about 12 of them. So the stained glass window motif always spoke to me as a, as a young man. And, uh, th- this this uh, this album art is specifically referenced later on in the album, but I think it's like I said, it's it's very simple. It's not real flashy. It doesn't show any members of the band, but I think it uh, it really encapsulates the album in a single image. And it and it stands out. Mm-hmm. And 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 as you described that cassette, you know, even you know they you know, did some customization to even make make that presentation. Of the album stand out, mm-hmm. sounds like. Yeah. So, uh, that very, very neat, uh, album cover. So, uh, let's get right into it. And the first track on the turn of a friendly card is called May Be a Price to Pay. Mm-hmm. 
So what, what do you think about this one, Alan? Well, I like it. It begins with that, like, regal, majestic opening. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know, maybe the rep- representative of, of the king and queen of the, of the playing card deck. Um, they said that in some early versions of the mix, that that was going to be a separate track. Mm-hmm. The band is not shy about releasing instrumental tracks as, as parts of their album. But eventually, it became the beginning part, you know, not just of the album, but of this of this song as well. Yeah. And it, it it introduces the dramatic theme of the album. Something's wrong in this house today. While the master was writing, the servants decided to play. Yeah, it, it's it's almost like the fanfare to start a film. Mm-hmm. I was thinking right. like the, right. the twenty like the twentieth century Fox fanfare, and then we go into because it, it's a very uh, sudden transition from the the kind of uh, regal horns like you'd expect in like a fantasy story, and then right into that blues funk rhythm. And, and what do we start with? Something's wrong in this house today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, just a, just a really really solid bit. David Patton plays the bass on this, and it is it is very funkadelic bass and it's uh and uh, the lyrics as you said very evocative uh, dave terry is the first of our uh, singers and uh it's it's his voice is very it's very he's got a very deep baritone and it immediately kind of arrests your attention because it's uh it's very forceful with his delivery like you say something's wrong in this house today you know it's a uh, it's 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 right in your face, just to, right as we start. And again, I think it's it, it was a, a, a great choice for the vocalist mm-hmm. because, despite that lush instrumentation, this is a rough, intense vocal performance. Mm-hmm. And again, it's it's the only one by this guy on the album. Mm-hmm. You know, so again, you're bringing in someone to fill this particular niche of what we need on this song. Mm-hmm. And and it starts with you know there there's some some epic language here about you know evil and unrighteousness possessing my soul and, mm-hmm. and you know, evil brewing getting out of control and imagery of the masters and the servants mm-hmm. but it all comes back to something's been going on and there may be a price to pay yeah I, I, there's a lot of mystery because we never find mm-hmm. out what right. that something is or or what the price is and then as as we move into the into the verses, the the guitar now starts getting backed by uh, horns, so that we bring the horns back that were in that introduction, and then the keyboard and the strings. So it gives it this very layered cinematic kind of uh, feel to it. It really does set up this a central mystery that it doesn't want to tell you what what is wrong. You know, is is this something that is as as grand? as the sound suggests, or is this something more intimate and personal? You know, so I always like that about it, is that it, it, does, it doesn't provide any easy answers. I mean, this one is almost the, the mission statement of the album, and, and it is somewhat grander in scope. It, I, it, it does become more personal, I think, as the album goes on, at least, at least to my interpretation. But we are definitely starting out with these themes of... 
actions having consequences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But and again, I'll, but it, but but even there, he talks about there's there's a line in there about the sorcerer and the apprentice. Mm-hmm. Again, sort of these uh, images of 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 uh, no, epic characters from fantasy. So it's taking on a really big scope at the beginning, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think it's 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 appropriate. You know, the uh, evil is not necessarily something that has to be on a ma- major scale. Mm-hmm. Evil can be very personal and our own personal evils, and that's really the theme here. And and as as we develop, so I you know giving your own personal evils this epic introduction, I think is a is a wonderful way to start it, and it really gets you pumped. You know, a, a, an album starter should get you excited. Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, it's like you go to a uh, to a wrestling show and they put a high energy act on first. <laughs> Same idea here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's and it's just vaguely ominous. Mm-hmm. And and part of that's the lyrics, but part of that is Terry's vocal performance. Mm-hmm. Again, matching the right singer with the right song. Yeah, definitely. And uh, so once we get uh, introduced and we start questioning what the what is wrong in the house today, we move into the second track, which is Games People Play. Where do we go from here now that all of the children are growing up? First of the two hit songs, mm-hmm. uh, a, a top twenty hit uh, here in the U.S. Unsurprising. Mm-hmm. This is mm-hmm. this is such for for a so, for a song that for 1980 is somewhat atypical in that it sounds a lot more to me like something you would have found maybe five or six years earlier on a Who record. Mm. But it is very layered, very detail-oriented, but so immediately catchy that, I mean, uh, a couple of... The first time I played this this album with my wife in the house, within the minute, the first time she heard it, she could sing along to it. Mm, and, and, right. and, and, her, and my daughter and her were bopping along to it. And so it, it's, it's infectious in the way that it... Uh, you know, the, the, the way that the the, the, the the way the lyrics are delivered, the beat, the piano guiding all of it, it's it's really compelling and focused, but it's so melodic that you can't you can't help but want to listen to right. it again almost immediately. And it, it, it just opens with that really identifiable synth part. Mm-hmm. And then the harmony of the vocals are terrific. And I hadn't heard it in probably a couple of decades, but you know, putting this in a few weeks ago. Bam! I remembered mm-hmm. every line, and, and and could sing right along to it. You know, not 
not every hit song deserves to be a hit song. Mm-hmm. This one deserved to be a hit song. Yeah, and uh, this has an absolutely fantastic prog rock bridge. get all quiet for a while and then there's some of those proggy keyboardy sounds kind of <laughs> right. floating around to me that that kind of builds on the mystery again because it's these unusual sounds but we go from that prog rock middle section and it absolutely slams into the guitar solo uh, by uh, guitarist Ian Berenson and that solo is just fantastic now I have to confess in this song there's a line a lyric that I assumed for years I had simply misheard because I thought I got the words, but they didn't make sense to me. And I guess it's, it might be a British term or just a term I wasn't familiar with. And in, in, in one version of the, of the chorus, it's games people play. You take it or you leave it. Things that they say honor bright. Mm-hmm. And I thought I heard. The word honor bright just didn't quite know what it meant. Yeah. So I thought, are not right. Yeah. I've always are not or are not bright. I've you always know, like, I've, like you're not bright. Yeah. That that's not a bright idea. I've always heard things that they say are not right. Mm-hmm. So I'm right there with you. <laughs> then, but I looked it up for preparation for long play, and it's I guess it's a British expression, but it would be maybe the equivalent of. On my honor, or right. cross, no, cross my heart. We might mm-hmm. say, mm-hmm. like you know, you can you can trust me on this, right? Um, but the lyrics here, um, that it, it at first, I've seen I've seen some uh, some analysis of this record where they talk about the lyrics here don't fit with the rest of it, but I think they make perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, obviously, I mean, there's you know the the gaming imagery, maybe mm-hmm. there's a, a simplicity to it, but we're really just being introduced to this. Right. You know, we got a hint from the album cover. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the first song, again, has sort of an ominous air. And this one's a much peppier song, a much poppier song. And it's just, but it's just getting into this idea of gameplay. Right. Both as a metaphor, you know, for just how we live our lives, uh, but it'll also play out in, in, in particular in terms of in terms of, of of games games played, right? And, and so so maybe you know you know may, maybe that's the issue that that some people have that it's it's almost not it's not smart enough. <laughs> you know, I don't know. You know, reading into that. Yeah, I mean, I, I may be overanalyzing it. I've been known to do that on occasion. <laughs> but the way that I look at it is okay, and and maybe a price to pay. Something's wrong in this house. 
And then we come into games people play. Where do we go from here now that all the children have grown up? Mm-hmm. So that now you you can you can start to build this this little story in your head that now the you know the the the, the kids are out. It's just them in the house now. And now it's the games people play. It's the you know the the little ways that we try to manipulate and control our environment. And you know it's a, you know the games people play in the middle of the night. It's it's the things that are starting to to you know change the dynamics and change the relationship. And that might perhaps that'll have like you said actions that have repercussions. What what happens when you change those dynamics and you start to you know move away from where you are? So th- and, this this is just a and, yeah and it and it and it moves into sort of the uh, middle aged midlife crisis mm-hmm. aspect of I don't want to live here no more I don't want to stay ain't gonna spend the rest of my life quietly fading away mm-hmm. yeah you know there's a point at which you realize eh, about half my life is over right and what am I gonna make of it. Mm-hmm. Or in this case, maybe what ominously bad decisions am I going to make? <laughs> yeah, or, it, or what adventures am I going to go on? Right. It's. I mean, this is. Yeah, like you said, this really deserved to be a popular single, and it really works well. And and again, even with the the very disparate elements, it comes together and gels very nicely. Even like I said, the the more progressive sound, the the kind of weird ambient sounds in the middle. During the the bridge, right. although and uh, there was actually a music video produced for this uh, for this song, it is a very very low key music video, but I really really like it because it's just the band in the studio. And uh, uh, if you go to if you find That's the if you, you I first found it on Vimeo, and not you it is on YouTube, but I found it on Vimeo, and the reason why I bring this up is that. The, um, the, the guy who shot the footage for it posted it on Vimeo, and he actually talks about, okay, we were in the studio at this time, and I was shooting just some B-roll, we ended up cutting it into a video, and it's like, hey, I like this footage because, you know, th- this guy is no longer with us, so we get to see him in the studio again. But it really kind of shows just these, you know, real musicians playing real music. There's right. no, nothing flashy, nothing fancy, it's, it's the studio, you know? It's real. So I definitely recommend uh, checking that one out. Yeah, that's interesting. Because when you said music video, I was thinking, you know, an official music video that was put out with the song. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for a concept album, you know, what you were describing was sort of a misfit. But if it's it's sort of a a little more unofficial is what it sounded like, Mm -hmm. you know, that that makes sense. But it's it's, it's interesting to see because that is really... It's it's obviously it's in the studio is where this band exists. Right. So that's uh, probably a, a quite an appropriate way for that that video to take place. Yeah. It also is neat in that it does get a a, a physical shot of the stained glass window that is the album mm, cover. Nice. So they actually had to have an have a stained glass artist make that window, which says to me it must be somewhere. <laughs> ah, see, <laughs> there's, there's that collector mentality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, th- this is this is just a great one. This is uh, this you would if you heard this on the radio and you didn't know it was the Alan Parsons project, you would just turn it up and rock out. I think. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure if it 
it ages pretty well. But I will say, you know, moving into the next song is is the other big hit. You know, I was listening to to this album in in preparation in the car, and I had Emily with me. So a a, a millennials take was that this one sound this particular song sounded a little eighties ish, mm-hmm. and that wasn't necessarily a compliment. It wasn't necessarily an insult, but I think it was a statement of fact, <laughs> as opposed to the next song, which seemed a little more, pardon the pun, uh, timeless to her. Mm-hmm. And of course, that is time. Timeless is certainly the, the right word to describe uh, time. Uh, we never shy away from a good pun, but man, this is a uh, such a change from the previous song, but such a beautiful song in its own right. And the, uh, obviously, the other the other big hit song, mm-hmm. and and I think if you're if you're uh, scrolling through the you know, the '80s station on on Sirius or on the FM, uh, this is probably the one of the two. I think you're much more likely to hear. Mm-hmm. I think this is the one that that uh, this is the one that that my wife remembered more more specifically than games people play. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the the thing that I took away from this is my my note here just is sweet, pretty vocals, but sad, sad lyrics. What a melancholy song! Yeah. In a, in, and it's easy not to notice that mm-hmm. because it's so pretty it's so catchy it's so radio friendly it sounds so safe and melodic mm-hmm. boy is it melancholy yeah and th- this was the the first uh song that eric wolfson ever did vocals for the alan parsons project and his voice is is just perfect because it really does capture like you say that that melancholy the as he you know he sings about time flowing ro- like a river keeps flowing like a river to the sea you know and, and, and it's such a simple I guess it would be a simile if used like it's such a, a, a such a straightforward simile but it's one that is immediately identifiable and understandable even even if you're a younger uh, listener you can understand that you you know even though that there may be the majority of your life still in front of you that time that's flowed past is always gone. Yeah, and, and and it's this was not the reading I took at age fifteen, mm-hmm. but the reading I take approaching age fifty is again that midlife, or at least facing mortality, mm-hmm. facing the prospect of mortality. Yeah, it's you know to the sea till it's gone forever, gone mm-hmm. forever, gone forevermore. Yeah, and then I mean even you know even more on the nose, you know goodbye my love maybe for forever. Goodbye, my love, the tide waits for me. Who knows when we shall meet again, if ever. Who knows where we 
I'm, I'm a little bit, uh, you know, behind you on the uh, on that particular train. But, I, you know, you, you come to a point and, uh, and and this is something, you know, we're and most of our listeners fall into this this age category. We do have some younger listeners, but, you know, I'm one of the younger guys on the network at 35 and I'm married and have three kids. So, you know, we, we wreck, I think we can all kind of identify with this yes, yeah. and, uh, and, but so it stands so wonderfully on its own as this just beautiful, but, but very sad song. And, but then when you really get down to it, it still fits the concept, right? Exactly. <laughs> because we were just talking about, Oh, you know, where do we go from here? And now it's that, again, that, that, uh, your own mortality looking at you that midlife crisis of like you know all that time that is gone and i've so you know i've used so much of it and i can never get it back it, it's it's that little that little bit of desperation this is a a, a great arrangement which I, I i guess we credit to parsons mm-hmm. yes like i yeah that's what he brings to uh, uh, to the equation uh, uh wolfson is, is the lyricist I, I don't know if he said that uh, he uh, uh, for uh, I guess all of the songs. So we start here, but this starts with that piano, and then just sort of slowly morphs into, you know, that that again that that lush orchestral song that it is. Yeah, and that one of the interesting things you mentioned this is this is Wolfson's first lead vocal gig, and you know it sounds like Parsons was pretty opposed. To Wolfson as the singer, mm-hmm. uh, both parties uh, uh, ad- admit that Parson doesn't really like Wolfson's voice. You know, Wolfson suggested that maybe you know, hey, you know, maybe I can sing this one, and he admitted that 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 request made it pretty tense in the recording studio because <laughs> Parsons wasn't all that wild about that idea, and and obviously you know Parsons did let it happen. He eventually agreed with Wolfson. And at that point, it was their biggest hit to date. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I have the, the remastered CD is, is what I'm listening to. And it has some liner notes, you know, from the mid 2000s, I guess. Mm-hmm. And it says, uh, you know, and, and, and Parsons is quoted as saying, I'm obviously wrong <laughs> because he sang on all of our subsequent hits pretty much. Yeah. And I accept that I misjudged his vocal talent. Mm-hmm. And, and, and here's what I would say that I actually don't think Parsons was wrong in general. I I, th- I think Wolfson has a pretty limited range. Mm-hmm. But when you get a song in that narrow range, he can nail it. Yeah. I mean, this is not a guy, you listen to this song, there's not a lot of, sort of vocal tricks to it. You mm-hmm. know, this would, I, I might not spin around in my chair if, if this were the voice. Right, yeah. You know, just a sort of classic singing competition mm-hmm. but he brings a lot of emotion to it and you know the the song is in his wheelhouse and i you know give him credit for sensing that he was the right guy for the job yeah and, and absolutely right yeah it's one of those times that you know sometimes it's it's you get into the studio and it, it you bounce things off and you see what works you know and and and, and mm-hmm. you know wolfson sticking to his guns meant that this song is you know it now is it, it exists in this uh, in this format in this manner and it's such like I said just a wonderful song one of those great you know put on and feel bad songs you know uh, <laughs> REM had a big exactly. hit with that too with yeah, everybody right. hurts remember we remember that one uh, but Alan Parsons Project did it 15 years earlier I'm just saying <laughs> um, but yeah just uh, 
So we're, we're, I mean, uh, and so here we are three songs in, we've had three very different tunes and all of them good on, in, in their own way. You know, they're, they, none of them, there's no sameness here. Right. And again, part of that is three songs, three vocalists. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it, that's just not the way albums, especially concept albums are really done very often like that. Yep. And uh, so with uh, with time flowing like a river, that moves us into our next track, which is I Don't Want to Go Home. thoughts on I don't want to go home uh, well certainly it's, it's fitting our theme again uh, uh, lyrically uh, that's for sure mm-hmm. um, I love the instrumental opening and closing of the song and at some points as I was listening to it I wish that had been again expanded into one of the instrumentals mm-hmm. but if you had that you would miss another set of rough harsh sad lyrics that's yeah. for sure mm-hmm. you know, I'm certainly glad they found a place uh, uh, for those lyrics again it's we're getting temptation we're getting bad choices uh, we're getting shame mm-hmm. is really what, I'm, what uh, a lot of what I'm getting out of the song yeah th- this is another one that as soon as the lyrics start hits you kind of right between the eyes go back home you damn fool surely <laughs> you know you can't win and you know it, it's it's it, it, again it, it's it's aggressive without being macho, you know. It, it's it's really it's it's telling you it's it's a, this is a bad decision you're making. Go home. He's like, I'm so, but I'm so afraid to be on my own. I don't want to go home. When when we know when, and this gets back to what we were talking about uh, earlier with um, you know games people play. It's like when now for for this guy, home is where he's alone, and. Here in the casino, that's where he's not alone. And so it's it's the you know when when home has lost its its uh, appeal and it's the lure of the turn of that next card, that's the only thing that keeps you going. And uh, so I mean th- this is one of the Alan Parsons project usually had at least a couple of songs in each album that were very um, kind of multi-part that had different tempos and instrumentation, and this one's like that. And it, it kind of it's like that roller coaster. You know, the, the, the down in the dumps and then the excitement and then we're down in the dumps again. 
You know, there, there's a, a, a couple of, of lyrics that are uh, they're, they're paired off. It says, "You should have stayed. You should have stayed on the outside looking in." And then later on, a couple of verses later, and he goes, "And you're way back on the downside looking up." You know. So it, I mean, I'm, I'm, and you know, it, it, it's an interesting thing because. You know, ostensibly, this is very much about the allure of gambling and gambling addiction. And that's not something to sneeze at. But I think you can take this metaphor and push it into any of the things that, you know, drive us to obsession. Whether we're talking, um, you know, we're talking uh, gambling or sports or sex or consumption or whatever it is. That drives us to, uh, to to abandon our better faculties and our decisions because we we're chasing after that next high, mm-hmm. you know. And it, the the risk that we take in doing that can we get to the edge and pull back, or are we going to go over the edge? You know, and, and tying back to the to the first song, the, the the opening line is you know there's something wrong in the house today, and I was. I was thinking about that line just on its own, the interesting choice of, of house, because there were, there would be a lot of ways to open that. You know, there's, there's something wrong in my life today. Mm-hmm. There's something wrong in myself. There's something wrong. But the line, there's something wrong in the house, in this house today, mm-hmm. is an interesting choice, and it's obviously sort of echoed here in, in, uh, in not wanting to go home. Yeah, and and even house. This is probably reading way too much. Mm-hmm. You know, but house has a has a gambling, you know, uh, reference right. to that. To the house always wins. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other thing I thought of in this song, in, in terms of of the shame that 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 is is being expressed here, is and uh, there is a stained glass window on the cover. So I don't think it's too much of a stretch, but this, what I thought of is the prodigal son story mm-hmm. and the prodigal son before the happy ending or without the happy ending, without the reconciliation. This is the son having run off and wasted his life and doesn't think he can come home to his father. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's, I think the state, the equivalent state uh, that, that our protagonist is in at this point. They can't come back home. Mm. You want a rough ending for a song? How about I'm like a washed up rag, tattered and torn. I wish I'd never been born. Yeah. You know, I mean that. You know, we're moving beyond sadness or blue or melancholy. You know, a, a word we used in 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 prior songs. You know, this is depression. Mm-hmm. This is shame. This is you know well beyond simply. Feeling a little down, right? And and that's uh, where the uh, where uh, Parsons on the piano, or, uh, mm. excuse me, um, uh, Wolfson on the piano comes in at the end of this of this track. You know, dun, 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 dun. it's very quiet and very uh, it, it 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 is it feels like it's down in the dumps. That high, whatever that high was, it's gone, and all mm-hmm. you have now is that face in the mirror looking back at you. But it, but but he knows what brought him there. Mm-hmm. He, they blinded you with diamonds. Yeah, you know, all the money that money can buy. Mm-hmm. 
that's a nice little line there. All the money that money can buy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but and and again, you know, talking about the um, the lines that are thematically coupled, a couple of verses later. But for every heart, they held a spade, and you lost more than money can mm, buy. Right. Mm-hmm. So you lost you you being here in, in the casino. What have you lost? You, you're again. Let's relate this back to uh, finance class. What was your opportunity cost? <laughs> yes. You know, did you? Mm-hmm. What did you miss at home? What did you miss at work? What did you miss in your life by you know, the playing those cards that came up spades instead of hearts? You know, it's. It, 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 yeah. I'd, I'd almost say that, uh, that either Parsons or Wolfson had a gambling addiction. This is so <laughs> cruel about it in certain ways, but I, I, I've never found anything to actually confirm that, so I'm gonna assume it's not true, but man, this is a, this yeah. is a hard one. And this is actually, uh, the end of the first side of the album. So if you had it on tape, like I did, you had to go and stop and flip the album over. With this and, very downbeat ending, <laughs> and and that is the perfect time mm-hmm. for it to end, so it doesn't just roll into the next song like it did on my on my uh, uh, iPod this week mm-hmm. or on the CD. You know, this is one you get to the end of this one, you, you might want to sit with it for a few minutes. Yeah, <laughs> you know, or or at least a few seconds, maybe a little meditation, a little something to. Just to let it sink in before you move on. Right. And uh, the next song is the very traditional um, instrumental track, which uh, all Alan Parsons Project's albums have at least one. And the one on uh, this one is called The Gold Bug. I don't often say this. That was an impressive whistling solo. Mm-hmm. It gave the song that sort of western feel. Oh yeah, country vibe to it. Mm-hmm. And that and that's actually uh, Parsons doing that whistling himself. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> yeah, de- definitely uh, a western. This is this is what I would call like the modern western. Yes. You know, uh, you get images in your in your head of walking down dusty streets and. Uh, you know the the sun the, the sun setting far far away with the long horizon away from you. Uh, so the you know that 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 fits perfectly when of course we're talking about uh, you know uh, Las Vegas and the Strip. Right. You know, but but I th- I think at this point, you know, we're not in the high class casinos of Monte Carlo anymore. Mm-hmm. We're more on the plains. It's a dusty, grimy border town. Yeah. You know where we're where we're gambling now. I think it's. We, 
lost some of that luster, maybe some of that sheen, some of that glamour that that can come from, you know, James Bond playing baccarat, mm-hmm. you know, in the high end casino. We ain't there anymore, right? Yeah, you get. Uh, like I said, it, it, like, I, like I said, for me, it, it was this idea of just kind of wandering up and down the strip. So you get the flash and the glitter and uh, you know all the the signs and everything else, but the emptiness that you know. It, I think all of us uh, at, at one point or another have felt alone in a, on a crowded street or in a crowded room, and that's what I think this conveys. That the non the 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 singing in this, which is non what I would call non diegetic, because it's yeah. not it's not words, it's just kind of be bound, be bound, be bound, bing, da bing, da bing. It yeah, kind of it's, it's yeah it's it's the human voice as just another instrument to play mm, with. Yeah. And that, that also, I think, contributes to that, that emptiness because it, it almost, to me, kind of suggests kind of the din when, you, mm, when, when right. you're the one not talking mm. and you hear everything else and it's all just kind of a din. And see, I've got... Um, my hearing is not the best. So if I'm in a situation like a restaurant or uh, in a, you know, a big crowded meeting room or something like that where there's a lot of conversations going on, I can't really understand any of it. I get a lot of white noise just because of the damage I've done to my hearing. So that that may be again bringing my personal experience to it. But that it was like, again, it, it's it's being alone in a crowd, and when you know this is you don't have anything else. Nothing else appeals to you because your your mind is on that one track. You know yeah, how I'll, do we get here? Yeah, I, I was also thinking you know, from a listener's perspective, you hear some vocalism some vocalization there you know there's a singer there it's almost the feeling that there's supposed to be something in this song and it's missing mm-hmm. you know you really feel the absence of that because it's almost there so it's, it's not just a straight instrumental right it's there's this feel that there's something that there's something missing mm-hmm. and and there's some really great instrumentation on this as well um yeah, there's some unusual instruments on this. Yeah, there, there's a clavinet and an auto harp, and I don't know that I've ever heard an auto harp on a rock album. Usually, the auto harp is more um, like metropolitan country, right? Than mm-hmm. than on rock, but it, I mean, it, and it all again just layers works, together yeah. very nicely. And yeah, I I I, I understand that uh, you know, Parsons generally not a musician. Um, He's generally the sort of the mad scientist, mm-hmm. you know, the mad engineer putting it all together. Uh, uh, but he played those two instruments uh, in, in in particular on this track, sort of being one of the one of the maybe being the song where he contributes the most uh, of the of the actual music mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. than just the again sort of the you know, mad wizard behind the behind the dials, right. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I really, I, I like this one. It, this is not as well known as some of their other, uh, instrumentals. Probably the most well known, I would say, is probably Sirius off of Eye in the Sky. Um, if you watched a Chicago Bulls game anytime during the <laughs> 80s or 90s, you'd be familiar with that one. Um, or, or again, if you're a wrestling fan, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat during his time in the WWF in the 80s. Um, but this one I, I like. It, it's very evocative. It's very moody. And as a guy who generally likes westerns, even ones that you take them out of the you know the uh, the horse and uh, stable type of western and put it in the modern context, 
I really like that kind of storytelling and that type of story. I think this is a perfect soundtrack to a, we- a modern Western that was never made, you know? Right. The, the lonely drifter wandering the streets of the modern day, um, you know, uh, frontier. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and so as, uh, Goldbug fades out, we, uh, come into the, the first movement, I would say, of the very epic, um, suite that, uh, is the title track, title suite of the album. And that starts us started with The Turn of a Friendly Card, Part 1. Another new lead singer here. Mm-hmm. Our, our, our fourth of the album. Yep, this. And again, there's just a great mix mm-hmm. of you know what this guy can do vocally compared to uh, compared to what the other gentlemen have brought to the table. And yeah. and, and it's the right choice. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so the singer here is Chris Rainbow, and between his voice and kind of the instrumentation and the composition of the music, this has a very kind of folk sound to it, like a British folk song type of, uh, of feel, you know, and, and, but uh, the real star here is the lyrics because oh, wow. every line of this is a metaphor. There, there's, there's nothing that's filler. There's nothing that's here because I got a rhyme with hands in the air, you know, <laughs> uh, everything here is pushing this concept and, and, and the metaphor so strongly and it conjures such wonderful imagery that I, I come back to this one just to listen to the lyrics. Mm-hmm. And you combine that with Rainbow's, um, I say, kind of, you know, very kind of quiet sort of voice. And it, it presents this idea of it's this inviting, come on in, but there's this underlying menace beneath it. Because you, as the listener, you know it's a trap. Mm-hmm. But our protagonist doesn't really have a choice in the matter at this point. <laughs> And, and there's something that he does with his voice in that turn of a friendly card. Yep. It's almost like he's adding it, it in, in, in speaking, it would be almost a diphthong, mm-hmm. you know, where you're adding, uh, extra syllables, you know, to, you know, to, to usually the one the vowel sound mm-hmm. down there in, in South Carolina. Uh, you've run into that. It's sort of a standard of the American Southern dialect. Yep. But here in singing, there must be a more 
specific musical term for that, but it is oddly off-putting. It's distinctive. Um, I'm not quite sure how to describe it. It, it sounds like he like there's an extra beat in there almost when, yeah. when he says mm-hmm. it, and it and it, sta- it makes it stand out. And again, it, it's part of that un- uneasiness with it, you know. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's a lot of lyrics here that conjure up certain images that um, you know aren't necessarily what you would think of. The the one, um, you know, uh, not all the king's horses and all the king's men have prevented the fall of the unwise. So it's, you know, it, we're not, that's not even a gaming reference. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. a, you know, a nursery rhyme. So it's something, it's pulling things in from the, uh, uh, you know, from, from different parts here. But again, one could say that the fall of the unwise, I mean, that's Humpty Dumpty, right? Mm-hmm. You know, right. he mm-hmm. took the risk, he was on that edge and he fell and there was nothing that could be done to fix him. And uh, th- then I made the reference earlier that the album uh, art would get referenced and that is in. Uh, this track where it is it's the last lines of the uh, song before it transitions into the next movement but a pilgrim must follow in search of a shrine as he enters mm-hmm. inside the cathedral and if that is not a description of any addiction right you know i mean that i mean this whole song is about obviously the it's it's in the the theme of gambling addiction but it's, I mean, this describes any addiction mm-hmm. from the opening verses you know, to the end. I mean, at the end there, you're thinking that this last gamble, this last fix, this last whatever will be my salvation. Mm-hmm. This will solve all my problems. If I, if I just, you know, if, if I hit blackjack right here, I'm going to put it all on zero, zero on the roulette wheel or on the wheel of perpetual motion. Right. And I hit, if I hit, if I play the lottery, you know, if I take, you know, 50 bucks of my paycheck every month and put it on uh, lottery tickets, that's my way out. Mm-hmm. And none of it is true. Right. It's not true in any, in any addiction. Yeah. And Whatever I, it is, it's not true. And another, and that's something interesting. I, I didn't really put two and two together on this until just sitting down and reading the lyrics doing our prep. But, you know, he says, you know, he enters inside the cathedral. So we've already got that religious imagery. And, you know, there's twice in this song, they, they you know, for God knows up till now it's been hard. Mm-hmm. So we're already bringing in more of that religious imagery, invoking God, when this is not something that is, you know, that we get the lyric later, nothing sacred or profane. This is, there's nothing sacred right. about this. This is, you know, this, this is... uh you know, this is free will. (laughs) You know, this is, this is the fall that we make our choices and we have to live with them no matter what the, what the outcomes are. I mean, I want to, I mean, you, you talked about every, every line having meaning. I just, I just want to focus in on this first, this first verse here. There are unsmiling faces in bright plastic chains. Mm. And just that line there, it's, you're imprisoned, you're mm-hmm. in bondage, and you don't know it. Right. Or, or you're enjoying it. Yeah. Uh, the, the imagery of the chains kind of made me think of, uh, uh, Jacob Marley from A Christmas mm, Carol. Okay, right. You know, that these are the chains I forged in life. Well, here, you know, our, he, he's in the casino and those are the chains that the other gamblers have forged. They're the bright plastic chains that keep you out of the VIP area. 
but they're they're still the chains that we carry with us you know that 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 prevent you from you can't go back home now you may not you might want to but now you can't yeah, it, this is, I mean, this, this and, is heavy stuff. And then we get the wheel in perpetual motion, mm-hmm. which, you know, on, on the, on the easiest level is, is, is the roulette wheel, but it's just the treadmill. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's the, the, you know, the, the hamster wheel that we all feel that we're on at some point. Uh, it's that striving and striving and never achieving for whatever, you know, in, 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 in whatever area of life. Mm-hmm. And they follow the races and pay out the gains with no show of outward emotion. And that is because whoever is, whoever is, uh, uh, dealing your addiction to you does not care about you. Right. Whether it's your dealer or the, the prostitute or whatever it is, mm-hmm. you know, whatever the issue is or the situation is, they don't care about you. Right. You know, the, the, the dealers, the, the pit boss doesn't care about you. Yeah, and 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 are are cold, just emotionless towards you. Mm-hmm. Right, because it, this is this is your life, but it's their business. It's their but business. It's your life. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah. you know, and and that's that's the the takeaway line is, but the game never ends when your whole world depends on a turn of a friendly card. Now, I will often joke that that is my motto when playing Magic: The Gathering. <laughs> But I, I used to make that joke, but, you know, as I've gotten older and thought about it, there are guys that are addicted to that, that pay that money every week to play and every six months pay more money and more to keep going in that. So it, it's, I mean, again, it's, I'm trying to be clever, but it's not funny when you get down to the fact that there actually is such a problem. So, I mean, that, that's that's what makes this, this album just stick with me, is this, the the lyrical content here is so evocative and so on the nose, you know, there's, like I said, there's just been throwaway here. There's, there's no, no filler lines just to, to mark time. Yeah, you mentioned the, all the King's horses and all the King's men preventing the fall of the unwise. The, the other half of that is there's a sign in the desert that lies to the West where you can't tell the night from the sunrise. Mm-hmm. And that's inside the casino. Right. You know, there's no no outside windows. No, I mean, you know, classically, it is designed to keep you there for as long as possible mm-hmm. in a in a timeless state, in an unaware state. Right. Although I do have to say, you also notice grocery stores are like that. <laughs> hat, hat tip to Jerry Seinfeld because it's his joke. But damn it, if he's not right. But uh, so uh, now that our pilgrim has entered into the shrine. Uh, we move into the next movement of the suite, and that is called Snake Eyes. Snake eyes, seven left. 
this one, in addition to being um, more of a rocker again, sounding uh, similar in a lot of ways to uh, uh, maybe a price to pay for some of the, uh, the guitar work, also features some uh, some kind of meta um, sound design in it as well. Mm, yes, some actual casino atmosphere. Mm-hmm. I, I I like the sound effects quite quite frankly because I think it's uh, I, you know it again it, it helps kind of sell the story and I like it because now with Snake Eyes things are going well. Snake Eyes Seven Eleven, uh, it's gonna be all right. Don't let me down. Just give me one more, you know. And and when when you're winning at the casino, everybody's your friend. Right. When you're shooting those dice and you're coming up and you're coming up and you're not crapping out, everyone's cheering with you because they're winning also. So he, you know, you feel again for this guy, it's like okay, I'm just give me one more and I'm upbeat and everything's going good and everyone's cheering and everyone's happy and it's like because you're doing it for them because you're making them money on their bets. They don't care about you. You're just a shooter. Right. And uh, so, I mean, and uh, and eventually it's it's going to come up Snake Eyes. It always does. <laughs> now, this is one, obviously, uh, the, this is one that was not a single. Mm-hmm. But I remember hearing this. I don't know if this was you know, the album station, even Q107 in Washington. I wonder if they played this one. Mm-hmm. Because, again, when I heard this one, I was singing along with it. And I certainly played the cassette a lot. Right. But I, I wonder if this one at least got some alternative airplay somewhere. It is a pretty darn catchy song, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some really nice guitar work, uh, especially at the end. There's a really nice guitar solo. This kind of reminds me a bit of, like, Pink Floyd from uh, this era kind of song they would do, especially with, um, you know, kind of the ambient sound. You know, Parsons worked on... Um, Dark Side of the Moon, and there's a couple of tracks on there that obviously have, you know, the ambient sound of people talking and discussions going on around you as you listen. We talked about this with time and the idea that the lyrics are a lot more sad than you would expect given the the, the music. And what I what you get here, and I and I've said some of the the lines uh, already, it's it's kind of an upbeat vocal delivery, but there's that little hint of desperation. And again, it's about, you know, it's, it's another catchy song about being in a place you shouldn't be in, mm-hmm. you know, but thinking that staying just a little bit longer, just one minute more, give me just one minute more, that's going to make it better. Yeah. You know, and that's, again, that's, that's, that's the addicts mm-hmm. you know, answer. You know, that's gambling. It's probably other things as well. Yeah. It's, I, I just need one more drink. I just need one pill because I need to get through the day. You know, I need, I, I, I'll, I'll go, I'll go to my, uh, you know, to my whore, or as uh, Paul Spatar would say, hua, <laughs> one more time, and then I'm, I'm done. You know, it, it's, it's that rationalization. You know, it's, uh, as you say, uh, just give me one marker more, then I'll walk right through that door. Mm-hmm. And, and it's gonna be all right. It's gonna be it's all gonna right. Be all right. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, again, there, there's the implication. Of, of him being in a relationship here. Cause he's sort of, I, I, I get the idea that in this song he's talking to someone. Mm-hmm. Now it just, it just might be the dealer or, or the pit boss. You know, maybe it's just the casino he's talking to. You know, but maybe it's his wife he's talking to. He's, you know, pleading to let him, to let him play just a few minutes more. Just, you know, a little bit more of the family's money or just a little bit more of, you know, uh, or, or, you know, borrowing just a little bit more from a buddy or from a friend again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's like I said it it's it, it it really holds together nicely that juxtaposition of the kind of you know fun blues funk sort of guitar work in the bass, but then like I said it's that that need that that gnawing need for something that is not good for you at all. <laughs> you know, and and you know, I, you know uh, it, it sounded like Wolfson had sort of been kicking around this concept at least for at least five years, mm-hmm. and maybe longer by the time this album came out. And, you know, we certainly did not have the concept of gambling addiction necessarily 35 years ago or 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that awareness of that. And, you know, I wonder if, you know, if he was thinking at first conceptually of both, uh, both, uh, you know, the, the songwriter and then maybe putting it in, into the protagonist. That sort of thinking of the glamour side of high stakes gambling. Mm-hmm. You know, like I said, the, the, the James Bond, you know, playing Baccarat. Right. You know, the, uh, you know, that, that maybe we're reading back into the album, uh, a more modern take on addiction. Mm-hmm. Or, or, or maybe in the penning of this, of this, uh, you know, he, he may have started thinking about, let's do sort of a, an upbeat side on the glamorous, you know, high class life. Lifestyles of the rich and famous, mm-hmm. and then as he, perhaps as he thought more about the concept, you know the the sadness mm-hmm. of that life, yeah, uh, 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 you know comes into it. You know certainly, you know by the end of this, uh, the word uh, degenerate may be applied yeah. to this particular gambler. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, oh yeah, I mean I, there's. That, that, that's always the thing. I mean, and you're absolutely right to, to bring up James Bond because, you know, that, that was, you know, as, as a kid, that was, at least for me, my introduction to the concept of casino gambling was watching Dr. No or On Her Majesty's Secret Service where there's those great scenes of them playing cards in the casino, you know? But, and, and, uh, you know, so, but you don't, looking at that, it's glamorous. Everyone's wearing tuxedos and evening gowns. And everyone's drinking, and it's the 60s, so everyone is smoking, you know. <laughs> but uh, but you're right, and 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 I and I agree with you. I don't think that the idea of you know there was the the kind of the stereotype of the degenerate gambler in the in the 70s, but did we really think of it as a disease like we do nowadays? I mean, I don't really think alcoholism. You were just a drunk, you know. You right. weren't necessarily right. someone that may have had an actual disease causing you to make these uh, you know these incredibly bad decisions over and over so it's, a, it's an interesting it's an interesting uh, approach to it for sure and uh, but uh, you know I, I don't think you can look at this album as anything but a you know a kind of skiving skiving scathing indictment of uh you know of, of the way that the industry peddles itself to people that are unable to help themselves mm-hmm. and you know there may be a slight aspect of reading a 2015 modern sensibility into it, mm-hmm. but it's there. Yeah, <laughs> it mm-hmm. is certainly there as well. Right. Yeah. You know that we it we we may be exaggerating a little bit. You know, we're certainly talking about the sickness mm-hmm. and the addiction aspect aspect of it. Maybe some of those concepts were not fully formed in Wolfson's mind. Right. But certainly the basics of it. You know, getting might not have had that same disease and therapeutic language. You know that that we can apply to it now, but he was certainly scratching at it. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, 
So as uh, you know, the the, uh, the the games wear on, we get into the next portion of the suite, which is called the Ace of Swords. that comes back on this one is the harpsichord which i think gives a very baroque dramatic yes. sound yes absolutely and bring then from there we bring in the woodwinds and the horns and i think the the horns getting back again to their use on maybe a price to pay kind of give it that that dramatic epic feel you know and uh, it's, this is another instrumental, so we're we're kind of uh, you know we're left to our own impressions as to what the Ace of Swords actually represents. You know, back in the in the mid '80s, when I was at college, uh, went to a concert that uh, you know was a new wave type of band played a lot of keyboard and synth stuff, and they did a number of instrumentals. Mm-hmm. And I had a show at the radio station, the college station at the time, so I interviewed the guys. And ask them about uh, about their instrumentals. I actually specifically asked if they had some classical training, and they sort of chastised me a little bit for falling into the trap. And they said that you know, playing instrumentals makes people think you're a better trained musician than you actually are. <laughs> that you know, instrumentals are always associated with classical music, and classical music is always associated with some training and skill and so forth and i thought that was just such an interesting concept you know they've been obviously been asked that question a billion times right you know and and had this had this pat answer to it um you know but you know we've we're we're talking about orchestrations and you know you know bringing in these and and uh, these different instrumentations and this baroque uh, sensibility uh, into a song, and to some extent, uh, I, 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 I think we do that. You know, we we, we credit musicians uh, who play instrumentals. I, I I just thought that was such an interesting concept. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of reading in class. Yeah. <laughs> or or you know, again, reading in some some classical training that may or may not be there. Yeah, well, I, I know in the in the realm of heavy metal, that's absolutely true because um, mm. you know Metallica and Megadeth both have instrumentals on their first couple of studio albums, and I'm, and at the time it's like, wow, these guys are really good. Listen to them; they can play an instrumental. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know? right. Now right, that's what we all think. That's just a natural. Right, it's just the way it is. Reaction. Yeah. 
Um, but th- this one is, uh, like I said, it, it's, it's, um, it's very dramatic. It sounds like kind of the, uh, you know, the, the rising action of conflict here. Uh, my, my note is that it's the fight against the rising tide that is the house. You can't beat the house. But when you went that, isn't that what you're doing when you're gambling? You're trying to beat the house just a little bit? You know, we started, uh, casino gambling here in Ohio. Mm. And, uh, I was driving by, you know, one of the, one of the billboards and it, the slots and it promised, you know, whatever it was, 93.87% payout. <laughs> so I mean, you're driving by and you think, well, 93, 94%. That's like an A, right? I mean, if I get 94, no, that's saying, they keep, you know, that, that's saying you're going to lose 6% of your money guaranteed. Yeah. They are telling you how much of your money you're going to lose. <laughs> you know, you cannot win. No, the, but you cannot win. The, the only, the only way that I've ever read that makes good, that has casino gambling makes sense is think about your night at the casino as a night where it's the same as if you had bought tickets to a concert or to a game. Mm-hmm. That's right. So mm-hmm. I'm here's two hundred dollars that I would have spent on seats somewhere, and we're going to take these two hundred dollars and we're going to go game for two or three hours and have fun, and that's going to be our evening's entertainment. Exactly. That's our that's our entertainment. Right. That's not our. We're not. Uh, we're not. This is not our investment plan. Right. For the kids' college fund. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll stick that with baseball cards and comic books. <laughs> the smart money move right there. But now you're just being mean <laughs> to all the listeners. <laughs> what what can I say? I'm I'm the you know me, I'm the valiant guy, so I'm used to people making fun of me for well you those books are in quarter bins. It's like well, I'm not gonna I'm not even gonna get not even gonna get started, I'm just gonna get upset. So uh but yeah, I, I really like this one and, and what's funny is because it's right in the middle of the the uh, turn of a friendly card suite. You don't hear this one on its own as much as you do the gold bug. So it's, right. it's very, to me, it's always kind of fun when you get to this one because you get this little, you know, very, again, dramatic. This could be a cut from a, a film score, uh, type of instrumental. And it's just right. right in the middle. It's kind of this transition between, you know, the, uh, the high of Snake Eyes and where we go with, uh, with the next, with the next, uh, piece. And spoilers. The next one is called Nothing Left to Lose. Nothing's good, the news is bad. The heat goes on and it drives you mad. Scornful thoughts that fly your way. You should turn away, cause there's nothing more to say. Indeed, and uh, not again another one that kind of you know uh, one of the uh, kind of nowadays on the internet we get a lot of these um, Eurocentric uh, phrases and sayings that a lot of the younger generation seems to favor, and there is one British one that I really like, and it's called "Does What It Says on the Tin." This song does what it says on the tin. 
the first <laughs> the first line nothing's good the news is bad <laughs> you know and, and those lyrics at the beginning are a little simplistic mm-hmm. uh, especially at the start uh, you know but they work right uh, they work and I think there's something to be said for the phrase when it comes to music this is often viewed as a negative that is the idea that a song is easy to listen to. Mm-hmm. Right? We make fun. We make fun of the genre of easy listening. Right. Boy, is this an easy song mm-hmm. to listen to? It is pop, pop, pop. Yeah. Uh, but again, there is there's something underneath that. Mm-hmm. If you're willing to stop the bopping your head and humming along. But what I think is very interesting is that this is Wolfson on the vocals again. And so just like on time, it's, you know, kind of this upbeat kind of delivery for the lyrics here, for the, for the vocals here, but the lyrics are very, very sad and very mean in a lot of ways. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the one I like is, you fought so hard, you were a slave. After all you gave, there was nothing left to save. And so it's kind of like a diss right there. It's like, oh, you did great, but you you were always going to lose. Yeah. There was nothing you could have done to change that. And um, you know, and like you said, it's it's very it is very straightforward with its its message here. It's melodic and it's lovely, but it taunts you. It it and and, and you get the feeling almost that this is, you know, maybe the the bartender kind of talking to our protagonist uh, and he, you know and, and he's telling him ah well you know hey and you know, maybe, maybe this is not what he's actually saying but this is what the guy is hearing right mm-hmm. yeah I like I, I, I like the way this song is set mm-hmm. uh, you've got that sort of pop easy listening aspect to it and then you get a nice instrumental section There's something really seductive about the first part of that song. Right. Again, it's it's easy. You know, she's an easy lover. Uh, but that's 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 the lie of addiction. Mm-hmm. That once you're in and in this song, as things start to get faster and faster and harder and harder, you know, it's too late to get out. You're two thirds the way through the song. Yeah. And and before you know it, it's over, and it's taken you onto that you know that heavier rock. You know, uh, instrumental section. Right. It, it includes a little bit of the Snake Eyes melody. Yes. It's thrown in again. You get you get that callback. And um, you know, and you know, that's when you, you know, when you when you realize this is one 16-minute composition. Yeah. That they've broken into pieces. Yeah, and and I really like that hard rock section at the end because keeping again with the thematic um, feeling of each segment of this. You know, that, that hard rock sound, that, that sound like from Snake Eyes, to me, that's the guy 
remembering that high, remembering shooting those those dice and Snake Eyes Seven Eleven, give me one more, you know, and everybody cheering and all the glasses clinking and and it's you know it's like he's like the song says he's got nothing left. There's nothing left to lose. I've got to get back to the tables. I need that rush. I need that dice. I need those cards. That's all I have left. You get that really great guitar work by Berenson, and that that solo in that that third section just just gallops and really takes off. And to me, that's that's the you know it's it's that rage. It's that I, I you know it's like I got to get back in there because this that's all I can do. If I get back in, if I get that lucky strike, I can get it. I can I can win and I can get out. But, you know, it's like I've, I can only go up. I got nothing left. I, I don't have any other options. So I've. And then, and, and, and then we get the response who'd want to be standing in your shoes? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's, and, and I, and I'd mentioned this earlier that, you know, nothing sacred or profane, everything to gain, because you've nothing left. Yeah, I like that. You know, the, you know, throughout the, throughout the song, you're getting that, that, You've got nothing left to lose. You've got nothing left to lose. Nothing left to lose. The last line of the song is because you've got nothing left. Yeah. You're expecting that, that those last couple of words, but nope. You've just got nothing left. Yeah. All you've got left is, like I said, is your memories of, of when things were good and your rage to get back there. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, th- this one, like I said, this one really rocks. Uh, it, it's definitely um, the, the climax of the... Uh, of the album, you know, to lead into the, to the final uh, movement. But this is the climax, just that right. really driving guitar. I love the riffs there. And then it's, uh, like you said, it finishes on the Snake Eyes riff. And it's all, again, it's almost like it's taunting you with that. It's a, dan it bam bam you know, that 7-Eleven riff right there, so. And that was the song where everything was going well. Mm-hmm. You know, so you've got that, you've got that peppy, you've got that, you know, it's, it's, it's the cruel reminder. Mm-hmm. Of when you were on your hot streak. Yeah. It's like, remember that? Remember how good you felt? How you feel now? You know? <laughs> and, uh, so, um, so if, if this, uh, if nothing left to lose serves as the climax, then our next, uh, the final piece of the album would be the denouement, and that yes. is Turn of a Friendly Card, Part Two. Smiling faces in fetters and chains on a weary perpetual motion. Moving on to all races and answer all names with no show of an outward emotion. And they think it will make their lives easier, but the doorway before them is barred. And interestingly enough, this is not a reprise. Mm-mm. It is the same tone, the same tune, the same vocalist, but it ain't the same lyrics anymore. Yeah, they've gotten even darker. Mm-hmm. 
our faces in, in plastic chains are now the unsmiling faces are in fetters and chains. Yeah, and uh, they're, they're chained to the wheel in perpetual motion. I yep. mean, the cycle never ends. You're, you're chained to the thing that that you wanted and that you were obsessed with, and now it, it owns you. Yep. And not just you. It's all races, answers all names, mm-hmm. with no show of outward emotion. Yeah. Again, that just that coldness mm-hmm. of of the, the dealer, of, of the deliverer, of the of whatever that substance or that brush is. Yeah. To me, that was the line that struck me on my most recent list. Yeah. Was that no show of outward emotion. Mm-hmm. That's the one that I'm meditating on currently. Yeah. And then the, the again, the follow-up to that, and, uh, and they think it will make their lives easier. Now, in the first, in part one of this, it was they think it will make their lives easier because God knows up till now it's been hard. But now, and they think it will make their lives easier, but the doorway before them is barred. Yeah. So, that it, an easy life, that's gone. You can forget about that. That door is closed and locked, and you don't have the key to it. So, you can forget about the easy life that you thought, if you could just, when you went into the casino, as that pilgrim entering the shrine that you thought you could get, no, that's done. What's what's before you now is not. It can be called a lot of things. Easy's not one of them. Yeah. And there, you know, there may have been some hope in the earlier versions of this song, or maybe even just some some self deception. Mm-hmm. But at this point, it's it is all laid bare. Yeah. You know, this is, you know, this is uh, this is hitting rock bottom. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and even in the instrumentation, it kind of plays in that because. Whereas part one was kind of that gentle kind of folk sound, you know, piano and kind of gentle uh, um, instrumentation. Now that's given way to electric guitar. And he plays the same, it's the same melody, but on the electric guitar, it, it has this this uh, this emptiness, this melancholy to it. Then And it's backed up with some horns as well in there that gives it that same epic scale that we got. Uh, earlier in the album with you know uh, maybe a price to pay and then uh and later on and and this gets back to what we were talking about you know the idea of uh that there's something wrong that there's this grand evil and it it may not be evil in the way that we might traditionally think about it but you know that that little that that piece of blackness in you that led you to this path that it, that gave that you gave in to this addiction that might be your personal evil but it's no no less evil than, you know, something, you know, some cosmic horror of some kind. This is the much more commonplace forms of evil in our world. You know, as we move through this album from, again, melancholy and sad to shame. And, you know, we end here really in, in despair, I guess. Yeah. You know, there's a there's certainly a, a, a hopelessness to this. You know, you thought about maybe maybe these guys... The, Wolfson, in, in, in particular, no, either was a gambling addict or knew someone who was. Well, obviously, in the uh, musical uh, circles they ran in in the '80s, they in the '70s, mm-hmm. they certainly saw addiction, right? You know, and I, you know, they they were certainly familiar uh, with that cycle, mm-hmm. and obviously, that's what they're they were you know, pouring into this. Um, not not necessarily a gambling addiction, but putting it in that in that uh, you know in that context. Right, exactly. 
And and I and I really like the way that this goes out because we bring in the strings and uh, mm-hmm. some more woodwinds and, and again it, it adds that loneliness and desperation, like you said. And it uh, it doesn't have a big outro. It just kind of it's the right. same melody, just getting quieter and quieter because that wheel that wheel is going to always spin. It's it's yep. it, and if and if at some point you know you're you know, you, you've given up the ghost and you've gone off to that great big uh, craps table in the sky. There's another guy coming in right behind <laughs> you to take your place, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, th- this is, th- this is an album that demands what I call active listening. Because if you listen to this, just kind of, let's say it's your first time listening to an album like this and you're just kind of, you know, got it on while you're doing something else. You're going to miss so much of this. That And I will say, it, it, I, I would add, when I listened to it at 15, I didn't get what I'm getting here mm-hmm. at 50. Right. That's for darn sure. Oh, I'm in, I'm in the same boat listening to this as, uh, you know, even, even younger than that. Cause, you know, I grew up in the 80s, so I had this, you know, it was one of just the tapes I had along with, you know, my, my weird owl tapes and stuff. Listening to this in just in my room, it's like, oh, it's just guitar and, and piano. It's just cool music. It wasn't until I got older that, you know, uh, I started really listening to this. And like I said that active listening and it starts all coming in. It's like, it's just like, whoa, you know, not, not to, not to put too fine a point on it, but it really is some heavy stuff. <laughs> and, and, you know, maybe it's because of that, the upbeat pop stylings, mm-hmm. you know, that are, that are, you would think a mismatch, but a perfect match for the inherent sadness or darkness mm-hmm. of the topic yeah again if you take the passive listening approach you know there are some upbeat easy listening pop hummable melodies not singable lyrics because at that point you'd figure out what's going on right <laughs> <laughs> but there are some hummable melodies at mm-hmm. least and you know my recollection uh, of this album as a kid you know uh, looking back on it was really well produced Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a, a, you know, I, I remembered it as a cool concept album that in my head I was you know, positively disposed, you know, towards the album. Uh, again, I, I, I always liked uh, in in music the uh, again I'll, I'll use that phrase the mad genius, you know, at at the mixing board mm-hmm. more necessarily than the than the singer. Or the guitar player, or whoever the front man really is. Right. You know. So for me, it's guys. It's guys like Jim Steinman. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the Madman uh, behind the glass, or or uh, Jeff Lynn. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, who basically was ELO. Right. I didn't necessarily know that at the time, but I knew he was uh, a major part of it. Uh, or or here, you know, it's 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 Alan Parsons, mm-hmm. though. You know, the 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 wizard behind the glass. Putting this whole thing together, sort of that that mastermind approach. Right. So I remembered beautifully produced, lush melodies, the classical bits. You know, I, I always dug. I'm a sucker for that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and an interesting concept, though I did not remember the details right. of the concept. You know, I, I knew there was things about chance and gambling and, and that aspect, but the uh, the depths of the darkness mm. of what's going on in this album uh, 
were lost on me. They were certainly lost to my recollection. Right. Yeah. And like I said, I, but, I, I was too young, I think, to even put two and two together when I first listened to this album. And it wasn't until I was started, um, listening to it again, uh, in college that I really started, you know, making those connections and really understanding it. And it's really just stuck with me because I guess, but again, the, but again, the nice thing is you don't have to. No, you don't. It's a great sounding pop. At 15, I loved the album. Mm-hmm. I didn't get it. <laughs> I, I got glimpses of it, but I, I really, now I respect it a lot more than I did. Yeah. You know, just as a as a piece of art. Yeah, and I and I think it's it's um, it's I, I like that you mentioned Jim Steinman because again, like you said, you and Michael Bailey talking about that out of hell, and one of the things you guys talked about on that episode was the ability to create mood and evoke mm-hmm. emoti- emotions and feelings and you know the stuff that we can all identify with, you know, and that even though the songs might have been upbeat and rock and roll and they weren't necessarily happy, you know, that there was regret and there was loss and there was uh, loneliness. Well, you know, here, th- this kind of takes that and pushes it off the edge. Oh, yeah. You know, there, there's there's no, <laughs> the, the the only time that things are going well is when you're winning at the table. That's, you know, that that's <laughs> right. pretty harsh right there. And, 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 and that is illusory and that is short term. Mm-hmm. So it, it, so again, like with with Steinman and and there were and, and Lynn and there were other producers in in this era working in the uh, the prog rock and even more into the more you know straight rock uh, of the time that you know could I don't want to say be manipulative of their listeners but in a sense they were they were manipulating our emotions by getting us to feel one way because of music but then when you hear the lyrics you start thinking something else it's the uh, you know it, it it's this dichotomy this contrast between those two that create you know really make you just sit down and think like i said the when i say active listening the image i always have is the guy with the turntable with the big cans on his ears you know sitting in sitting in the recliner just listening and and that that's that you know i'm not not saying you have to listen to an album that way but that's kind of i think what they were shooting for that, that when you're listening to this type of music it's taking your your complete and undivided attention, not to sound like a uh, you know again like a professor. That's okay. Um, <laughs> the other uh, other two other sort of similar uh, similar thoughts. One is again, this was my I, I I hate to say this. Fortunately, my sister doesn't listen to this. <laughs> but another thing that I owe her. <laughs> uh, uh, the other uh, album y prog person uh, that I'm still a fan of and have actually turned Emily onto is Rick Wakeman. Mm, mm-hmm. And he did the Journey to the Center of the Earth album, the King Arthur album, the, the Henry VIII album. And it's a lot of that saying. I, I just sort of conceptually love the idea that this is not just a collection of Barry Manilow songs. Right. That this is something bigger. And I got that from, I got that from Meatloaf. I got that from this album. That The, the concept of there's something sustained here. Mm-hmm. You know, this is this is an entire thing. Oh yeah, uh, is something that at at some level uh, appealed to me and still does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there's a complexity here. Mm-hmm. You know, there, yeah. there there's nothing wrong with something that is uh, straightforward and simple and meant to be consumed and enjoyed. I'm I have right. absolutely no problem with that. That's not this record, and that's not this band. Right. So. 
the the other comparison I would make, especially with Parsons in particular, because he wasn't even the songwriter, mm-hmm. um, is the closest comparison I can make to him is another one of my musical uh, heroes is Wagner. Mm-hmm. Is the, uh, the, the, I mean, the, to me, the closest thing that you know, Parsons might be is sort of that uh, he's the composer and I, I think of it more as the, as the, um, the conductor. Mm-hmm. Right. He's conducting the orchestra. Right. Is in essence what he's doing. Yeah. And that, and you're right because what, what has Parsons done? He's assembled the pieces that can produce the sounds that he wants and then he's directed them in the order that he wants to make the sound. Right. So Exactly. So, yeah, uh, just, I mean, just a fantastic uh, album. Any excuse to listen to this is, is worth a while for me. I, 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 I owe you one for that. Yeah. Well, like I said, I'm... We had, we had kicked around a couple others, mm-hmm. uh, a, a couple of ideas, and, and, and when you pulled this one out, again, I, I, I didn't remember the specifics of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I certainly remembered enjoying it and respecting it. Boy, is there a lot more there than I knew back then. Yeah. So uh, I, like I said, and, and this is one. This give, give me an excuse to break it out again because it's it's one. Like I said, I only, I only have it on tape, so I got to really, I got to make a point of it, you know. So, uh, but yeah, just just fantastic listening, and I've been listening to it. You know, I think I've listened to it like four or five times over the last couple of weeks. Just mm-hmm. just listening to it and doing prep and taking notes and research, and it's just been a, an absolute blast. And and when you can I, say I that. Did have to- because I, I, I did have to make sure that the iPod and the CD in the car were off shuffle. <laughs> yes, that does. That the, you lose a little bit of the flow mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when you take these and, and listen to them in any random haphazard order. Yes, that is not how they're meant. To no, be no, that's that's one thing I gotta say. You know, compact cassette. You put it on, you play it. It's discreet. I am. There you go. You know. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, uh, so folks, if you've enjoyed hearing Alan and I talk about this album, please, please use the link at twotruefreaks.com. Go to Amazon.com and pick this up. I mean, I think you can get this for like seven bucks on Amazon. It is a well worth your seven bucks to pick up this album and give it a spin and, uh, and, and just really, you know, rock out with some, some really nice prog rock from the late seventies, yeah. early eighties. Yeah. And if, if, if you pick up the remastered version, it's got some uh, nice bonus tracks on it, of you know, with just you know, some of the early versions of songs mm. or multiple versions of songs, um, sort of rough mixes. Uh, they 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 describe the the extra version of time as an early studio attempt. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to do some compare and contrast, uh, a little a uh, little uh, there's some. Uh, DVD extras, if you will, yes. some, seeds, some CD extras mm-hmm. on the uh, on the remastered version. Yeah, so and I love that stuff. Yeah, definitely, that's great stuff. So yeah, um, so uh, Alan, want to thank you for uh, for joining me tonight to talk about uh, the turn of a friendly card. Oh, thank you, Luke. Really, really enjoyed it. And uh, just want to thank everybody out there for listening. And uh, stay tuned because you never know what's coming on long play, but I got a feeling it's going to be something that's pretty rocking, wouldn't you say, Professor? <laughs> Absolutely.
If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the 2TrueFreaks at the same time. Visit our website at 2TrueFreaks.com. 2TrueFreaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can email 2TrueFreaks directly at 2TrueFreaks at gmail.com. 2TrueFreaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. You can find Two True Freaks on Facebook. Just search for Two True Freaks. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. Thanks for listening. And join us every Monday for new episodes of Two Two True True Freaks. characters depicted are really stupid and disgusting. Any similarity to actual persons would be really sad. Okay, I really didn't mean that pun. No, it's just, okay. Just between us. Good, <laughs> good puns. Good puns are their own reward, is what I've always said.